Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books on some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. Over the last 50 years, it has become customary to frame moral questions surrounding medicine and the treatment of all forms of life under the rubric of bioethics. The rapid development of modern technology opens new possibilities and with them a whole range of moral issues. At the same time, many in today's increasingly secularised society question or reject traditional Christian teachings on the sanctity of human life. Indeed, Catholics find themselves defending the gospel of life in an often hostile environment. Frequently accused of attempting to impose their religious beliefs on the rest of society, they must also show that the Church's moral teaching on bioethical issues is a matter of right reason and not just revelation. In part one of this interview, Father Michael Baggett recommended five books on bioethics. In this second part, he covers some further recommendations. Father Michael Baggett is Assistant Professor of Bioethics at the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum. He is also a research scholar at the UNESCO Chair in Bioethics and Human Rights in Rome, Italy. He was Adjunct Professor of Theology at Christendom College's Rome programme from 2018 to 2022. His writings have appeared in First Things, Studia Bioethica, the National Catholic's Bioethics Quarterly, and Medicine, Healthcare and Philosophy. He is editor and contributor to the book Enhancement, Fit for Humanity, Perspectives on Emerging Technologies, published by Rutledge in 2022. Uh, Michael, now we can go on to discuss your extended shortlist. Okay. You recommended three further books. The, uh, the first one on your extended shortlist is The Congregation for the Doctrine of Faiths, 2008 instruction, Dignitas Personae. This was widely anticipated because it was expected it would come out in favour of the adoption of embryos, but Contrary to expectations, the document um, tended, sided towards without categorically eliminating, disqualifying the other position, but favoured opposition, ruled out in print and tentatively pro tanto the adoption of embryos. Why have you chosen this document over the same congregation's 1987 instruction, Donum Vitae, the gift of life? I've always felt the early instruction was clearer and better argued. Yes, that's a good, a good question. Well, I I chose the, the Dignitas Personae document um, because it is the most recent uh, sort of extended reflection on bioethical issues that we find from what was then the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith is now that, like all other congregations, the uh, dicastery for the doctrine of faith. And so it's the most uh, extended reflection on these matters. At the same time, the the document is very clear that it's building upon and in a sense presupposing and, and integrating the earlier document, Donum Vitae, that you mentioned. And that earlier document is well worth uh, a reading and I would say highly recommended as well. And uh, in many ways, I could you could say is uh, could be necessary to appreciate fully 
what Dignitas Persone is, is doing, what it's trying to develop. Um, Dignitas Persone, having been written in 2008, is also uh, able to benefit from years of, of further reflection on new technological developments in the area of procreation or in other fields. Uh, you mentioned the expectations and the controversy regarding uh, embryo adoption, and as you noted, uh, the, con the congregation basically decided not to make a, a definitive judgment, so uh, it, it did not, uh, it certainly did not give an unqualified endorsement to uh, embryo adoption, so uh, we don't really see movements in the church, uh, you know, with some exceptions, kind of enthusiastically uh, promoting this practice as part of the culture of life. But at the same time, the, the, the congregation uh, chose not to offer a clear condemnation. It certainly indicated that some of the moral concerns that arise in practices of medically assisted reproduction, such as in vitro fertilization and, um, and embryo transfer, that some of the same moral concerns that arise in analyzing those uh, procedures that had already been addressed in Donum Vitae could also arise in the moral evaluation of embryo adoption. But again, the, the text did not I don't, not in my opinion, want to imply that these are uh, morally equivalent, right? That certainly if they were morally equivalent, uh, then embryo adoption would be excluded in the same way that in vitro fertilization and embryo uh, transplantation is, is excluded as a part of the, the good moral life. So there, there's still certainly controversy in that theme. It's important for any Catholic bioethicist or anyone who simply wants to appreciate what the church teaches to be aware of the parameters and principles that the church has placed uh, for reflection on these matters. And within those parameters, uh, Catholic ethicists, bioethicists are invited to contribute to this ongoing reflection. And perhaps uh, just as we had a sequel to Donum Vitae and Dignitas Personae, we will eventually have a sequel to Dignitas Personae that may very well uh, offer a definitive judgment one way or another on this matter. There are good faithful Catholic bioethicists who come down on different sides uh, of this issue, whether it's appropriate uh, or not appropriate. Also, Dignitas Personae is uh, interesting, I would say, certainly, in my own uh, field of research regarding questions of uh, human enhancement biotechnology, because it is, to my knowledge, the first uh, magisterial document that begins, I would say, begins to explore these issues in, uh, in looking at possible genetic modification, in, in looking at other approaches that seek to radically alter uh, human beings through biotechnology, through uh, pharmaceutical products. Uh, here, the, the reflections, um, I think, are, are helpful. They introduce the, the very standard distinction between therapy and enhancement, between that which 
contributes to the, the healing or the repair or the preservation of health therapy, widely accepted by you know, practically all, uh, versus enhancement, which is understood to be something that, that goes beyond uh, the, the goals of therapy. Uh, some use the pithy statement, you know, making us healthier than healthy or better than well, right? So bring us beyond this state of health. And I think that the, the document understandably uh, raises concerns of a, a kind of new eugenics uh, of trying to shape a superior human race, which would uh, stigmatize those who do not have certain qualities and would favor those with certain qualities. It could uh, exacerbate the inequalities in society that we all already face between those who have resources to uh, pursue these these greater capacities of, of cognition, of, uh, of uh, mood stability or of uh, delight uh, emotionally or of uh, those who have the resources to achieve uh, a far greater physical prowess. Uh, in terms of athletic ability or, or, or other aspects of physical beauty or stamina. Uh, so again, they, these raise some pretty serious questions about uh, society and, and, and justice and, and access. Uh, but again, the, the, the document is just starting to address these concerns, concerns that are present, again, within the Catholic Church, and then also in non-Catholic literature about these regards uh, in the President's Council of Bioethics, these issues were already being dealt with in the early 2000s. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot more work to be done. And uh, like other uh, thinkers in this area, I, I would move beyond the therapy enhancement dichotomy. I think there could be forms of uh, enhancement that are morally acceptable, so-called therapeutic enhancements that respect all of the goals of a therapeutic procedure, but could bring us to a state beyond the statistical norm of health, um, but that also that do not inhibit the person or distract the person from pursuing uh, non-physical goods like uh, friendship. Uh, uh, intellectual truth, uh, social collaboration, etc. But these are pretty big issues that the the document introduces well, but that need to be explored, especially because we're we are already a, about a decade and a half away from the document, and it, at least in terms of of bioethics, uh, a decade and a half is is quite a long time. So well worth a reading, together with its earlier. Uh, bioethics uh, document, uh, sort of elder brother or sister, uh, Don Vite. Next on your bonus list is Charles C. Comacy's Resisting Throwaway Culture. Uh, going by the book's title, it takes its cue from Pope Francis's catchword for a disturbing contemporary trend. Yes. In line with Pope Francis's concerns, the book articulates a consistent life ethic and suggests that care for human life should be not should not be restricted to pro-life policymaking, but also extend to caring for the vulnerable and needy that we meet in our everyday life. Um, can you share your thoughts on this book and why have you picked it? 
Yes. Uh, so I think that in many ways, uh, Komosi offers a, a very good explanation and application of what I was talking about earlier regarding uh, Evangelium Vitae. Evangelium Vitae is clear and unequivocal regarding the evils of abortion, of euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, um, and, and, and other violations of, of human dignity. And the author, Kamosi, is likewise quite clear in this regard. Yet he also wants to remind us of other themes, uh, say regarding uh, poverty, regarding the, the treatment of, uh, of pregnant women, regarding the role of women in society, etc., that are also mentioned in Evangelium Vitae and are very much part of our tradition. And he wants to make sure that we we are truly creating this this whole culture of life, um, a culture of life that that welcomes uh, people at all stages and, and takes the initiative to meet them in their uh, needs uh, of their vulnerability, of their uh, their dependence on support. And so he he does a, a good job of showing how these issues relate to each other and. He also helps us to purify, if you will, uh, a term that's been very present in conversations about bioethics, especially in the Catholic world, this kind of idea of a consistent life ethic. Now, unfortunately, this consistent life ethic term and approach uh, has, in my opinion, done damage in the sense that it has uh, sometimes tried to relativize so much traditional themes of bioethics like abortion that these issues start to lose the, their urgency and that individuals no longer really take them so seriously because they say, well, we have so many other concerns uh, about poverty or uh, environmental uh, issues or criminal justice reform. And, and so efforts can become very dispersed and the urgency of confronting uh, clear cl violations of human dignity uh, can, can be dampered. <clears throat> that is not by any means uh, Kamosi's approach. Rather, he wants us to see that, that there are concerns at all stages uh, of life, uh, but he does not want to relativize uh, traditional themes or, or treat all bioethical issues uh, in exactly the, the same way. Also, just to conclude on Kamosi, I think that the strength of his book is his capacity to frame these issues in a manner that can be a little bit more comprehensible to a wider audience. Kamosi is well known for uh, his effort to enter into dialogue with Peter Singer, the major secular bioethicist who uh, is by no means on board with the church's teaching. Uh, Peter Singer has famously said and written on the fact that he thinks this whole notion of uh, human dignity, of universal human dignity, is a kind of Judeo-Christian doctrine that does not make much sense in a secular world and, and ought not to be embraced. He's famously said that he supports not only abortion, but uh, infanticide, right? And he, he thinks that it's 
<laughs> dishonest to uh, support abortion without also accepting infanticide and that there are certain uh, young animals that might be w more worthwhile uh, and worthy of protection than uh, infants, uh, say with impaired uh, functions of autonomy or, or, or consciousness. So Singer is by no means on board with the Catholic Church, yet the two have engaged in many uh, public dialogues, public debates. Uh, they have uh, uh, collaborated on different projects. So I think Camosi really models the way in terms of presenting strong convictions, well-argued convictions uh, to a wider audience and helping them to uh, question their own positions and, and see whether or not their their goals of uh, uh, of a just society are are really uh, consistent or whether they need to be uh, changed and, and adapted. Coming back to something you've mentioned a couple of times, you've pointed out how both John Paul II in Evangelium Vitae and Camosi stress how there are many different issues with belong to the culture of life or consistent life ethic. It's not just about um, defending the unborn or opposing physician-assisted suicide. There are also issues such as um, the death penalty, immigrants, and so forth. But, and I'm here. I'm not. I'm not trying to comment on John Paul II's analysis nor on Camosi's presentation of these themes. But we know that in contemporary debates, as you've already pointed out, there can be a, te a tendency to treat all these issues as if they were on equal standing. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is a big difference. Um, for Abortion and physician-assisted suicide are moral absolutes. They're actions which cannot be performed under any circumstances. Whereas um, when we're dealing with issues such as immigration and so forth, these are not negative precepts of natural law. We're dealing with positive, affirmative precepts of natural law, where, which are always obligatory, but which it's not possible always to fulfill that obligation in every circumstance, every every case that presents itself. Yes. There's much more room for discretion in these issues. So whereas every unborn child has a natural right, right to be to life and to be immune from threats or actions which would violate it, take away its life, not every immigrant has a natural right to enter into the country of his, his or her choice. Right. Um, so that's why there would be a lot more room for discretion debate upon some of those issues, whereas there has to be a categorical op opposition to abortion or euthanasia. Could you just expand upon this point? Yes, no, that's, that's very important and, and I would be in, in full agreement. And I, I think both Jean-Paul II and, and Comosi as well. Uh, so certainly on on some of these issues, there can be a legitimate diversity of approaches to promoting positively the good of respect for immigrants or 
assistance to those say who are fleeing their country for uh, financial motivations or because of uh, political instability, etc. And each country varies in its capacity and uh, and its ability to embrace uh, the, these immigrants while also caring for uh, the needs of, of its citizens, right? So there can definitely be a legitimate approach to immigration or any sorts of inform reforms that are necessary to uh, come to the assistance of those who might be starting to flood a country. I mean, I think, for instance, in the the situation of appreciation for the difficulties of unborn women, right? So there's nothing we would say that could morally justify uh, the killing of her unborn child, right? And so we're quite categorical in that. And I, I would imagine most agree that we should treat uh, a woman uh, with with respect and care and and recognize her unique uh, vulnerability in the state of pregnancy and the, the unique uh, need she has. Now, for some, that might translate in heavy state intervention to provide a very generous uh, payment of maternity leave and so forth. But there are others who may very well be quite concerned and committed to the good of these women who say, well, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, support so strong a state intervention. I, I, I think that other institutions at a more local level can supply for these needs, the family itself, the extended family, um, civic organizations, local churches, synagogues, etc. So it, it, it's important in, in these uh, in in these issues, as you've as you've noted, that we leave room for uh, discretion and prudential judgments about the best means to uh, achieve these goals uh, of respecting human dignity, whether the immigrants, the uh, the pregnant woman or those who find themselves in poverty, right? There's a whole host of uh, economic concerns of, and, and debates, legitimate debates about the best economic system for any given country to alleviate the negative effects of poverty and ensure that citizens at least have access to to workforce and to a, 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 a living wage and, and a, a dignified uh, life for themselves and for their family, right? But there are different uh, models, economic models uh, that we can certainly debate to uh, as the best means to that goal. And it's important that in these conversations we do not uh, demonize each other, right? That we are not uh, quick to judge someone, say, as insensitive to the plight of immigrants simply because he points out that his country might need uh, a more stringent immigration policy and might not be as a country in the position to welcome as many immigrants as it is welcoming or at least in the manner that is welcoming right i think it's uh it's incorrect and unhelpful uh to demonize people in that regard and so a, a proper distinction between these different issues is is always uh necessary so long as we're we're giving due attention to to the different uh, bioethical concerns at work in the whole span of human life. And finally, you've proposed all artists needs what it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics. What does the author mean by a public bioethics? And 
by making a case for the body? Yes, so uh, Sneed's a, a very interesting work. Uh, Sneed is, uh, he works at the uh, Notre Dame Law School. He is a, a lawyer and a, a professor of law. And so he is consistently engaged with uh, you know, matters of, of public concern and interacting with people who do not share his own uh, Catholic convictions. And over the course of his career, he's become convinced that some of the analyses that we find in other authors like Charles Taylor and reflections that were developed by Carl Elliott regarding the impact of a kind of expressive individualism, uh, that, that this kind of thought in many ways undergirds a lot of debates about bioethics in the public sphere in a pluralistic society at both the beginning and the end of life. So this notion that each individual has this kind of utterly unique identity that is discovered through this process of introspection and that in a sense only the individual can find apart from serious concern about other uh, unchosen commitments or responsibilities that could arise through family or, or work and that this personally discovered identity ought then to be uh, respected by those around as is expressed. Um, this kind of philosophy, though it might not really be well articulated in the minds of many, seems to be sort of accepted and then plays out in, in different ways uh, and, and leads to, a, again, a lot of this sort of radical personal autonomy uh, that we've alluded to. So we can think today about many issues concerning uh, gender identity, right? There's a strong sense that we as a society ought to do all we possibly can to respect this utterly unique individual introspective journey that has brought a person to decide, I am a man, I am a woman, I am something else. And that no matter what that person's biological constitution is right at a bodily level that sense of inner self of personal identity is paramount and ought to be respected to the point that we as a society will use different pronouns we as a society will invest money in perhaps suppressing a fundamental process like puberty we as a society will allow and support this individual to undergo what many uh, in the not so distant past would consider to be simply a, a bodily mutilation uh, in order that that individual is able to respect and express that utterly unique personal identity. So uh, this is kind of one example of, of many others in bioethics where there seems to be this divide, this radical dualism and divide between that inner self and the body and the body becomes more and more this kind of external raw material that can be manipulated and shaped according to the autonomy radical autonomy of the individual now what's interesting about sneed is that he doesn't just stop at this kind of negative analysis or a negative critique of this and say this is bad this is dangerous let's not do it he says that we need to also foster and cultivate an appreciation for what it means to be a bodily being 
and the fact that we just are not in practice radically autonomous, that all of us are born into, raised in, and constantly sustained and shaped by a complex, intricate network of dependence and uh, mutual support. Uh, he draws on the idea of Alistair McIntyre, right, the philosopher I mentioned earlier, that all of us live somewhere in this kind of spectrum of disability, right? So in many stages of our life, we might be blessed with generally good health and and be able to pursue a lot of life projects with a, a good deal of autonomy and, and self-determination. And that's all well and good. But, you know, our, our, our dependencies are still there. Uh, we have mentors, we have teachers, we have family members, we have spouses uh, who teach us, who encourage us, who support us when we're discouraged or in need. And that kind of dependence is all the more present naturally at the earliest stages of our lives where even outside of the womb, it's very difficult to describe ourselves as suddenly fully autonomous, right? We, we have great need for the nurture and care of our parents and for those around us. And then as we advance in life, naturally, there's a period of deterioration in terms of a physical or, or even cognitive capacities that demand an even greater dependence on, on others. So rather than run from or be ashamed of this human finitude that the body brings or this vulnerability and dependence, we ought rather to acknowledge and, and embrace the, this mutual dependence and, and be willing to extend uh, that care and concern for the weak, the frail, and the vulnerable, no matter what their, uh, the state may be or their, their capacity for exercising in practice personal autonomy, just as we would hope that others extend to us in our moments of, of greatest need and vulnerability that sh that same unearned uh, care and concern. So I, I think it's a it's an interesting take. As I said, there's some profound philosophical sociological reflections. But given his his work, uh, you know, as a lawyer, as a professor of law, he he's also does a very good job of, of bringing this to the the very practical decisions that that we as a society are are making uh, at a legal and political level well michael thanks so much for leading us through your extended recommendations list of recommendations for the best book of the best books my pleasure bioethics thank you very much thank you for listening to read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.